0: Uh, In the 1890s, there was a small Baptist church in Mayfield County, Kentucky. The church just had two deacons, and these two men were constantly bickering with one another. Well, on one particular Sunday, one of the deacons put a small wooden peg on the back of the wall so that the pastor, when he arrived at church, he could hang his hat there on the back wall. Thoughtful gesture. However, the other deacon, when he discovered the peg, was outraged. Quote, how dare someone put a peg on the wall without first consulting me? Well, before you knew it, the rest of the people in the church, they began to take sides. And within a matter of weeks, that small congregation split. And now, over a hundred years later, residents of Mayfield County, Kentucky, still refer to the two churches as Peg Baptist Church and Anti Peg Baptist Church. True story. You know, we laugh. But the sad reality is most church splits are not over doctrinal issues. Rather, they're over trivial things such as a peg on the back of a wall. In fact, I once spoke to a friend who told me that a large group of people left his church over the color of the organ pipes certain members were very 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 upset that the organ pipes the silver organ pipes clashed with the gold cross behind the pulpit they claimed and they were serious as a heart attack that prevented them from fully worshiping God on Sunday morning it's too much of a distraction i can't worship god with silver organ pipes and a gold cross it's it's too distracting So they stirred up a great commotion, and as a result, a split occurred. Faith, this past September marked our 14th year as a church, and we have much to give thanks to God for. It is not an exaggeration to say that God in His kindness has blessed this church, Faith Community Church, in extraordinary ways. Specifically, God has blessed us with life-giving unity. You know, I, I have been, I've been blessed to grow up in a Christian home. God saved me at a very young age, and I grew up uh, going to church. And in my experience as a Christian, of all the churches I've been a part of, I am so thankful and I can say that this is the healthiest church I've ever been a part of. We have much to be thankful for here. That said, though, because all of us, we still have indwelling sin, conflicts will arise. Faith, please hear me. We are not immune from losing the unity we so enjoy. Keep in mind that in addition to our own fleshly desires our own tendency towards selfish ambition. We also have an adversary, Satan, who loves to see churches implode. And sadly, that happens much more often than I care to admit. So here's the question I want us to consider this morning as a church, and that is, how can we keep, how can we maintain the unity and health we enjoy as a church. That is, how can we prevent our church from experiencing a heartbreaking or devastating split? How can we we guard ourselves from losing our gospel witness in this community? Well, this is the exact question the Apostle Paul answers in our passage this morning. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. That's page 977 in that paperback Bible. As you're turning there, let me give you the context. The context, rather. As several commentators have pointed out, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, marks a turning point in the book of Ephesians beginning in Ephesians 4.1, Paul's message moves from doctrine to duty. It moves from creed to conduct. In the remaining chapters of this letter, the Apostle Paul is going to draw upon the glorious theological realities he has taught in chapters 1 through 3, and now he's going to apply them to the Christian life. And what we're about to see Is that the first matter, the very first thing the Apostle Paul addresses when he takes these glorious realities we've just gone over in the first three chapters? The very first thing he addresses and wants to address is unity in the church. So follow along with me in your copy of God's Word as I read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Again, think of how he has identified himself previously. He sees himself under the sovereign hand of God. He's he's in chains because of the Lord. Serve the Lord. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. What do you urge us to do, Paul? To walk in. In a manner worthy of the call into which you have been called. Okay, Paul, what does that look like? Verse 2 With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Okay, Paul, why? Why should we be eager to do this? Why should we be eager to be unified? Verse 4. There is only one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Who is over all and through all and in all? Amen and amen. This is God's good word. When was the last time you went hiking? Comedian Jim Gaffigan has a bit on hiking. Maybe you've heard it before. He says, he says, the first thing you notice when going on a hike is that it's a mistake. He's like, there's nothing to do, there's no, there's nothing at the end of the trail waiting for you like a restaurant or a vending machine, right? And then he says, and then, and then there's that moment when you're on the hike that you realize like, oh wait, we have to walk back. There's no exit through the gift store, right? Now, maybe you have a different perspective on hiking. Perhaps you think hiking is great, and I say, you know what, good for you. (laughs) (laughs) However, I must confess that I've had more than my fair share of terrible, miserable hikes. And there's two things that I've learned from my bad hiking experiences. The first is, number one, you need to dress properly. Sadly, on more than one occasion, I have found myself cold and underdressed while hiking in the Sierra Nevada mountains there in California. In fact, I once mistakenly, I mistakenly wore flow hose while hiking. Remember those, flow hose? Anyone remember these? The sandals? Oh, well, Good for you. <laughs> but I still have the scars on my toes from that bad mistake, okay? Second, I also learned that you need clear directions. That is, when you go on a hike, you need to know your destination. Where are we moving? Where are we moving to? Otherwise, you could get hopelessly lost, and time doesn't permit me to tell you how often that has happened to me. As I mentioned, Ephesians 4.1 marks a turning point in this book. And beginning in this text, the passage I just read, Paul's message, like I said, it moves from doctrine to duty, from creed to conduct. And notice, what is the first command Paul gives there in verse 1? Please note, he urges He urges all Christians to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. That is, he wants them to to take seriously their conduct as believers. And this, I want to argue, is Paul's thesis for this section of Scripture. We could say it this way. What Paul is getting at is simply this. We could summarize it with this command. He wants all Christians to walk worthy of your calling. Walk worthy of your calling. Faith, as the rest of the Bible makes clear, the Christian life is like a race. But it's not like a sprint on a smooth track. No, in this fallen world, it's more like a marathon. Even you could say a hike over rough terrain. And Paul's concern for the Ephesians and for us today is that we would walk, as we go on this journey, we would walk in a manner worthy of our calling. That is, your walk, your conduct, would match the weight of your calling. As several commentators have pointed out, the Greek word which is translated worthy there, in verse 1, it has the root idea of weight. In fact, it is the word from which we derive our English word axiom, which means to be of equal weight. In an equation, the axiom indicates doing something to each side of the equation so it remains true. So Paul is saying, we should strive to live lives conduct ourselves in a way that is equal to the great blessings and spiritual realities described for us in chapters 1 through 3. And just just for a moment, consider the gravity of those blessings, of those realities. What have we learned? In Christ, we have been predestined before the foundation of the world. We've been predestined. Chosen by God the Father, predestined to adoption. We've been redeemed by His blood. We've been given an inheritance. We've been raised to new life. We've been shown mercy. We've been given access to the Father. We've been brought near. We've been made one in Christ. And we are now God's workmanship. Amen? And Paul now wants our walk to match the weight of those glories. In fact, one might argue, I would say, Paul is obsessed with how we conduct our lives. He's obsessed with how we walk. For notice how often he brings up this topic in the next two chapters. We have our text, Ephesians 4:1, when he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Then in verse 17, he says, Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Then a few verses later in chapter 5, he says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Then a few verses later in verse 8, he says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord Walk as children of light. And then finally in verse 15 he says, Look carefully then how you what? Say it. Walk. Not as unwise, but wise. God's desire for all Christians is that they would walk in a manner worthy of their calling. You know what? I wonder I wonder how many counseling sessions would come to a solution almost immediately if the people in the counseling room asked themselves this question. You know what? Am I in this situation? Am I walking in a manner worthy of my calling? I've, I've been called to walk a certain way. I've been called to conduct myself in a certain way. My conduct ought to match the weight Of the great salvation and blessings I have in Christ. Does that match up? Or am I living for myself? So, so how can we walk in a manner worthy of our calling? What does that mean? What does that practically look like? Well, thankfully, Paul tells us like with hiking. I'm going to suggest, in order to walk worthy of your calling, you need, first, proper attire. However, it's not Patagonia. Rather, you need to wear Christ-like attire. Look again at verses 1 through 2. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And now he's going to spell out what that looks like. Elsewhere, Paul talks about being clothed in in these items. He says, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. We're to wear, to adorn ourselves in Christ-like attire, behavior. At Dwight Pentecost, I came across this in my studies. He, he told of a, of a church split that was so serious, each side filed a lawsuit to dispossess the others from the church. The civil courts threw it out, rightfully so, And eventually it came to a church court where it belonged. And the higher judiciary of the church made its decision and awarded the church property to one of the two factions, those that lost the lawsuit, withdrew, and then they formed another church in the area. And in the course of the proceedings, the church court that made this decision, they discovered and they found out how the conflict Had started. And you know how the church conflict started? It all started at a church dinner when an elder received a smaller piece of ham than the child sitting next to him. He was greatly upset that he would receive a smaller portion than a child, and it just unraveled from there. Notice, what does Paul list as the first character quality that should show up in the life of a Christian who truly understands the weight of his or her calling? What is it? Humility. Humility. If you want to demonstrate that you truly know and understand the glories of Ephesians 1-3, through 3, then walk in humility. I mean, seriously, say whatever you want about the truths of Ephesians 1 through 3. But if, if Ephesians 1 through 3 has not pierced you to the heart, making you hate the pride in your life, then you don't get it. The way you walk in a manner worthy of your calling is by adorning yourself in humility. And faith, we cannot talk about this enough as a church. This is why humility, you know, uh, Claire and the, the Goulds and several other the new members, this is why, this is, when they take a new members class, we talk about humility is one of the core values we have here at faith. As we like to say, Humility is the oil that makes the engine of the church run. Tell me, what happens if you remove all the oil from your vehicle? Is it going to run? It's going to lock up and stop. And sadly, that happens in many churches. Humility is the oil that makes the church run and run effectively and smoothly. You see, pride Pride is, as we've discussed, is relentless concentration on the self. Pride makes everything about you. I mean, we see this, do we not? In that elder who was upset that he received a smaller piece of ham than a child. Pride is a high or inordinate estimation of self. And I, and I want to just for a moment here just drill down And because the the overarching theme here that Paul is addressing in chapter 4 is unity, I would like to show you how pride often shows itself in disagreements. You know what I hear a lot of? When I hear someone talk about a person they disagree with, I will hear people frequently say things like, "Well, <laughs> you know, well, that's just not going to work out. That's, that's just, we all know what's going to happen. That's just going to end in disaster. Or I hear people say, well, we know what they're thinking. Well, I know exactly what they're thinking. Maybe. Do you see what that person is doing in those statements? They are standing in judgment over the person they disagree with claiming they know the future outcome and the motives of the person's heart. How arrogant. How prideful. There's only one person who knows the outcome of the future and who knows the motives of a person's heart. And tell me, who is that? God, not you. In fact, can I ask? Think about the last disagreement you had with someone. Did you think or say those things? Did you elevate yourself to a godlike authority claiming to, to know the future and the motives of the other person's heart? Friend, that is not walking in a manner worthy of your calling. That is prideful rebellion against God. It is self-exalting. And if we're going to maintain unity in this church, we must rid ourselves of that. Well, I mean, you know what those pro-vaccine people are thinking. You know what those anti-vaccine people are thinking. Any topic, insert it. We ought not stand and give ourselves a godlike status saying, I know what they're thinking and I know the outcome of the future. That is pride. Humility, on the other hand, is God-exalting, not self-exalting. It is God-focused, not self-focused. It is others-oriented, not self-oriented. As someone once said, humility is not thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. My, My focus is on God. So let's go back to that disagreement you maybe had earlier this week. Whereas pride is ascribing a godlike authority, knowing the future, knowing the person's motives, humility correctly assumes, you know what? I don't know the whole situation. Humility kindly asks questions to make sure you properly understand what's going on and what's being communicated. And I would venture to say, So many conflicts spiral out of control because instead of the two people interacting who have a disagreement, instead of them actually actually listening to what the person is saying, they're importing meaning and other things to what they're saying. Humility asks questions and it seeks understanding in the midst of disagreements. And then gleaning all the information, you know what it means to walk in a manner worthy of your calling? It then means, now that I have all the information, I respond in gentleness. For notice, that's the second mark of what a person ought to clothe themselves who's walking in a manner. Paul says, in humility and gentleness. Again, I wonder how many conflicts would cease or never start in the first place if we chose to be gentle to one another. Yet how often are we tempted to respond when someone disagrees with us or doesn't go away? How are we often tempted? Indeed, do we not often respond with harshness? We can be harsh not only in disagreements, but when things don't go our way. Now, I, I, I need to confess to you I was strongly convicted of this during my studies this week. Faith, harshness, and rudeness have no place in the life of the believer. I am, you are, we are betraying our calling as Christians when we are harsh and rude and irritable With others. And I need to tell you, you know, I God in his kindness, he's so good to convict of sin. I need to confess to you, this week I found myself on occasion, on one particular occasion, being harsh with my children. I was not gentle. I was mean and harsh. So I confessed that to them and asked for their forgiveness, which they graciously granted. Then I also had to bring that before the Lord, confessing my sin, asking for His forgiveness. And if I could just ask, have you been harsh with anyone this week? Friend, if the Spirit is convicting you, Of a moment when you were rude or harsh towards someone, I would invite you to join me in owning that sin and repenting of it. And asking the person you sinned against for their forgiveness. And then, with God's help, purpose to walk in gentleness. Gentleness is not you don't have a spine, it doesn't mean you don't have convictions. It doesn't mean you're never animated. But as we look at the Lord Jesus Christ in His behavior and how He describes Himself as gentle and lowly, we can still have convictions and demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. But notice, not only only just gentleness, but also what does Paul go on to say there. We should also walk with patience and long-suffering to bear with one another in love. Now, faith, I don't know if you know this or not, but long-suffering and bearing with one another is something we are called to do. And I say that because a vast majority of people I meet in the counseling room want nothing to do with bearing with another person. They want nothing to do with being patient towards a spouse who might have a similar issue. They don't want to forbear. They want out. They want relief. Yet part of what it means to walk worthy of our calling is that we're patient with others, bearing with them in love. So it's not that I'm just, okay, I'm going to grin my teeth and bear it like can't stand this church member, or I can't stand this sibling, or I can't stand this spouse. Or it's not like we're just, Ugh. I don't know what that is. Ugh. But that's not, that's not what God. We're to bear with love. We actively choose to love the person whose sin inconveniences you or irritates you. And oh, what healing would come to marriages if husbands and wives chose to patiently bear with their spouse's sin, Lord, would, would you help me bear with my spouse's sin? Lord, would you help me to point them to Jesus? Lord, give me the words to say to lovingly show them what Christ would have them to do rather than the grumbling and complaining about the problems that their spouse brings in their life. And, and I want to say, this is what, This is what makes a Christian marriage, can make a Christian marriage unique. In marriage, the two become one. And when the two become one, you get to know everything about that person, warts, sins, and all. And you have a choice. When you see your spouse's insecurities, sins, situations, you can either throw it back in their face, And say, do you see how this this bothers me? Do you see how this makes my life hard? Throw it back in the face. Or you can bear with them and say, I love you. I love Jesus more. I'm going to bear with you in love. I'm going to pray for you with your insecurities, your failures, and your sins. Who wouldn't want a spouse like that? And that's what we're called to indeed, not only in marriage, but also in the church. Faith is what we just discussed. Walking in humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, Does this seem heavy to you? Does it feel weighty? It should. You know why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ did all this for you. Faith, the way to have your walk match the weight of your calling is by reminding your heart of what Christ did for you. For consider the weighty actions that your Savior accomplished to save you. What does Philippians 2 state? What does Paul write there? Christ humbled himself to the point of what? Death. Death on a cross. And while being crucified on a cross for sinful people like you and me, what came out of his mouth? Was he harsh? Was he irritated? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And keep in mind, Jesus died on the cross for people who just didn't disagree with him, but who hated him. People like you and me. Then Christian, what is Christ's disposition towards you as an unbeliever? Is he not long-suffering with your sin? Is he not patient? (laughs) The other day, I was talking with one of my kids, and I forget which one it was, and we were just talking about sin and the problems and complications. and one of them says, "I tell you what if I were God, I would just wipe everybody off the face of the earth." <laughs> and, and it was one of my sons, I forget which one. And he's absolutely right. I mean, if I was God, I would not have the patience. But God has the patience with you, Christian, and He's committed to your good, and he doesn't throw your sin. Back in, he doesn't throw your sin back in your face. He loves you and is doing all things for your good and his glory. I mean, does God not continue to shower you with love though you are unlovely? Faith, the way to have your walk match the weight of your calling is by reminding your heart of what Christ did for you and then dress like him, act like him. But then second, you must move towards unity. So this is the direction. So like a hike, you need the proper attire, and then you need the right direction. So we're moving towards somewhere. Paul Paul lists all these character qualities to move us in a direction, and that is unity. We dress in Christ's likeness out of our pursuit of unity. Look again at verses 3 through 6. He says eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We're Christ-like attire, and then we're moving. We're hiking. We're running towards unity. Let me ask you. We don't have to say it out loud, but let me ask you: What are you eager to do? What are you eager to do? This Christmas, we built an outdoor ice rink in our backyard, and when it got to subarctic temperatures on Christmas Eve, you know what I was eager to do? get on my skates and I skate with my family and play hockey. I was eager. I couldn't wait to do it. Notice what Paul says there in verse 3. To walk in a manner worthy of your calling, you must not only wear Christ-like attire, but you must also move towards unity. That is, we adorn ourselves in these virtues for the purpose of keeping the bond of peace. This is something he wants us to be eager to do. Paul exhort us, be eager to maintain unity. You know, I have to tell you, in the midst of disagreements, I don't think we're ever eager to pursue unity. Brother, you know what I think we're eager to do in disagreements? Get my way. Make sure everyone knows I'm right. I'm eager to get what I want. We often come to relational difficulties or disagreements not eager to be unified. But Christian we must. Why? Because we have unity in Christ. As many commentators have pointed out, Paul cites what is probably an early Christian hymn. As you no doubt noticed, there are seven ones in these verses. One father, one faith, one baptism, and so on. In these verses, Paul is describing the unity that each of the three persons within the Godhead creates between Christians in God's church. And it's important to note that Ephesians 4 is not teaching unity at any cost, it's unity in Christ. So notice, there is one body. That's the first one we see there. In verse 4, we share a common existence in Christ's church. We have, we're diverse in backgrounds and gifting, but we are united as one. There's one body. There's one spirit. We share a common origin in the Holy Spirit's work. Right? The Holy Spirit is the one who creates unity and powers us to maintain it. There is one hope. We share a common hope in Christ. Now remember, remember what Paul wrote in chapter 2, verse 12. Remember at one time we were without hope until God called us and saved us in Christ. There is also one Lord. Now, we as Christians, we both confess and we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now you have to understand When the early Christians said, Jesus Christ is Lord, they were also saying to everyone in their hearing, Caesar is not. When the Jewish Christians said this, Jesus is Lord, they were boldly identifying Jesus with the God of the Hebrew Scriptures. So this was not just simply an empty creedal affirmation for early believers. This confession, as we're going to see as we work our way through Hebrews 11... And as we study the early church, this confession could cost you your head. Then there is one faith. No, and notice, notice in these verses 4 through 6, notice the exclusivity of these statements. There are not multiple ways to God. There's not multiple ways to be saved. No, there's one spirit, one hope, one Lord, and there's one faith. This refers to the essential truths we believe as Christians. There's one baptism. We share, all Christians share a common experience of being spiritually baptized into Christ. We are united with Him the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And the act of water baptism pictures this reality. And then finally, there is one God and Father. As his adopted children, we share the same Father. Right? As we talked about when we welcomed new members, right? He is the God over all and the Father of all his children, regardless of their backgrounds, situations, ethnicities. Faith, this is the unity we have in Christ. We're called into oneness. And Paul is urging us that we would be eager to maintain this unity. How? By wearing Christ-like attire and moving towards this. Our song of response this morning is, Let it be said of us. And I'm going to invite us that as we sing it, we would sing it as a prayer, asking the Lord to help us maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Amen? Let's pray.